Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Welcome everybody, it's fantastic to see you all here and um, it's a bit of a cold rainy night out there now I think. It was sunny this morning but I've learnt that is the British weather. (laughs) Um, But thank you for making time to come along tonight. And I'd also like to thank um, my Australian friends, family, colleagues, who of course can't make the 24-hour flight to be here tonight, but have certainly had a significant influence on my thinking over the years, and I very much appreciate their support and collegiality, especially my honours supervisor, Professor Betsy Waring, who's now retired, and PhD supervisor, Professor Gay Hawkins. And most importantly, I'd like to acknowledge my partner Jill who has of course been instrumental in the decision to move to Bath and leave behind the warm and sunny weather. <laughs> and my two, uh, my UK colleagues Professor Cara Aitchison and Professor Tess Kay who've kindly made the journey here tonight and I've certainly benefited from their wisdom, generosity and humour over many years. So thank you. And I'd like to acknowledge my fantastic Bath colleagues. Uh, in the Physical Cultural Studies group. We have quite a few of them here tonight, which is great to see. And in the Department for Health. And across the university more broadly, people have been incredibly welcoming and helpful uh, with answering all my questions about how does this work at Bath and why do you do these things this way in England? (laughs) I've quickly learnt that we are actually quite different cultures, Australia and the UK. I think you only realise that once you live in a place rather than visit. And I'd particularly like to welcome our students who are here tonight, because they're a really important part of our broader academic community. And we very much value the the teaching research nexus in our sport and social science program. So tonight I'm going to talk about um, how we're, we're urged to understand health, wellness, sport and physical activity in terms of doing things that are good for us. And we can probably all recite the government guidelines about health, being active, eating well, and maybe you know a little about managing mental health. That's a more recent development. But tonight I want to try and bring together my research interests, which are around physical and mental health, and of course they are very interconnected. So I've tried to put a lot into this lecture, but um, I think we can keep it to 45 minutes. So as a qualitative researcher, I'm very interested in people's experiences of being active and inactive across many different contexts. And these are photos of my lab. I've been working in Department for Health with lots of colleagues who have labs and do interesting things in labs. So this is the lab that I work in as a social scientist, out in the world, in lots of different places. And it can often be a challenging process from understanding how the new sport of roller derby has taken off around the world with its unique DIY ethos, by the skater, for the skater. It aims to empower women to push the boundaries of feminised bodies and identities. And while I've only observed rather than played roller derby, in other research with Cycle Queensland, for example, it's been necessary to engage in the experience, to understand the context. So I cycled 1,600 kilometres with 1,000 riders over nine days to do an ethnography on women's involvement in cycle, mass cycle touring. And I thought it was an interesting event an annual event that occurs, because we had about 40% of women participating. And if you look at cycling in terms of recreation, sport and commuting, women's rates of participation are much lower. So what was attractive about riding 
for nine days with a thousand people and camping under the stars and cycling 80 k's each day. Well, it was certainly um, an interesting study in terms of what is not sport and what, how physical activity and physical cultures can be defined in terms of their social value. But I'm not really going to talk about that today, other than to say when this photo was taken, <coughs> um, it had poured for two days and I was stuck in the tent <coughs> taking field notes, doing interviews, and then we had to move all of our bikes and our gear to a, a campsite that hadn't been um, flooded. Now, you might think that people would talk about really negative stories from that experience, but no, they actually talked about the kind of adventure that had created the uncertainty and how they had to stand in queues and do things together, so they met a whole lot of other people. So doing qualitative research and being in the field generates a lot of unexpected and surprising uh, moments that you wouldn't otherwise really understand. But the research that's been most challenging has involved interviews with people about their understanding of the factors that contribute to youth suicide and women's experience of depression and recovery, both in rural and in urban areas. The stories that people have shared certainly revealed to me the complex um, interrelationships between our individual and our social lives. And research often reveals the unexpected. So we can be, we can be moved to know by our encounters with others. Our assumptions about the social world often come undone. And we realise that a stance of not knowing can be helpful for opening up different ways of thinking. So living with ambiguity, uncertainty and the partiality of knowledge can be incredibly productive for thinking beyond the conventional frameworks that have often defined individual and social problems in often one-dimensional ways. Academics in the sport area usually have some kind of narrative um, about their own sport experience and how that's informed their research. Or in Dylan's case, I thought I was really taken by his example of winning <laughs> a lottery ticket and how that changed his career. Um, but in terms of our physical cultural studies research group, we, we were often quite passionate about sport, but we are interested in the critical dimension around sport and health. So exploring the vast array of embodied practices that are beyond just sport, thinking about physical culture very broadly, letting people define it for us, and thinking about how those forms of movement are implicated in our lives in different ways, so that we can explore the complex power relations that generate inequalities and prevent people being active. And this can also open up then different ideas about what we can do to address some of those complexities about being active and living well. <clears throat> So in this context, <clears throat> I was very fortunate to grow up on the northern beaches of Sydney, just down the road from where Home and Away is filmed, in a cul-de-sac that looks much like a neighbour's set. <laughs> Though I've never watched either program, so please don't ask me any questions about them. <laughs> it's one of the most common questions I get. <clears throat> but it had incredible sporting opportunities. Um, <clears throat> everything from surfing to netball to football and beyond. But my story is something of a counter-narrative because winning and elite performance were not really my driving forces. Um, sport was very much about learning through the moving body. And I, I have to thank <clears throat> my horse <clears throat> in relation to the dressage comment for teaching me two things. One, about feminist principles. And secondly, in terms of how we actually can move through different logics and ways of embodying movement with ease and pleasure, not simply in terms of winning. 
So writing is very good training for academic life because there's no end point. We never stop learning. We have to keep figuring out how to get back on the horse every time we're thrown off or trampled. And what happens a lot in academic life. <laughs> so we learn resilience. And equestrian sports um, are amongst the very few where women and men compete directly with each other at the Olympic level as equals. And in fact, women and older and Paralympic riders often excel at dressage because they have learnt how to think through the sensory body and to listen and move in relation to the horse. And taking this a step further, it also helps me think about moving beyond the whole mind-body opposition that has historically pervaded Western thought and culture. We tend to think about the body in an instrumental way as a machine. <clears throat> so I think there's a whole lot of set of issues that arise around that. So writing <clears throat> may be premised... <clears throat> I hope I'm not losing my voice. Bernie <clears throat> will have to take over. <clears throat> um, <laughs> so writing may be premised on equitable gender relations, but it also brings into view the social relations that exclude people based on class and cultural differences. So the writing culture of my experience of Australia in the 1980s was shaped by a very different social assemblage compared with, say, England in 2016. It was far more affordable. Land was far less urbanised. Our local riding club was accessible. The one up the road was much more elite. And parents were not... <coughs> or parental discourses in the 70s were not saturated by fears about children and girls taking risks like they are today. So could you imagine in our risk society today allowing a 13-year-old girl to buy a completely untrained, almost wild horse for 50 pounds, expecting her to work part-time, pay for it and train it to become a dressage horse? This was all good training for academic life. So, I hope this story illustrates how our sport and leisure choices do not just emanate from our own individual motivation, but rather they are highly contextual and contingent upon <coughs> opportunities that arise through the complex assemblage of the socio-cultural, historical, political and environmental relations that shape our individual and our social biographies. So all sport, movement and health practices have the potential for benefit and harm, for inclusion and exclusion, as well as maintaining and transforming social life, which of course leads me to the topics I'm going to talk about today. And it was really difficult in writing this lecture to narrow down the topics because I have quite a broad range of interests. So I've selected three that I think will be, uh, three research projects that I think will speak to those different um, issues around physical and mental health. So I want to frame this up first with a bit of background around um, the biopolitical context of health and wellness and then talk a bit more about the projects themselves as examples. And I approach these research issues through what I call a relational sociology. So a set of questions I'm asking and seeking to grapple with um, to help understand the complexity of our everyday lives. So these are not questions that have simple answers but they're questions that I keep coming back to um, and that drive the empirical research. So thinking about how we understand the experience of health and illness and inequality 
in two main areas. Active and inactive embodiment and mental health or ill health or emotional well-being, depending on the language that you use and who you're talking with. So this interest has been less about people, um, well, my interest has been less about people who are very involved in sport or in elite sport, uh, and more about those who don't participate and have felt excluded or, or engage in different kinds of physical cultures and leisure practices. We can learn a great deal from understanding how different individuals and groups experience physical culture, and then we can identify what needs to shift and change. So a lot of work I've done has been around gender and the need to challenge some of the gendered norms around sport to be more inclusive. So today I'm going to draw on examples from Australian research with low-income families about healthy lifestyles and also the rise of parkrun in the UK, some more recent UK research. And with respect to mental health, I've been researching how women define their emotional distress as depression and how they do recovery both in relation to the kind of conventional medical practices and also the less known social practices. So researching the gendered experiences of depression and, and recovery, um, as well as my other project earlier on that led to this, which was around community perceptions of suicide and why it happens, can reveal the important cultural assumptions about normality and stigmatised identities and help us think about how power relations shape the very emotions that we can feel, such as shame, that's a really powerful emotion, and has very damaging effects on people. And these emotions help prevent help-seeking. So there are some really fundamental questions, I think, that cut across different disciplines, psychology, sociology, for example. Researching the everyday experiences of people generates rich insights into the knowledges that people have about their everyday lives beyond the health system and beyond the expertise of professionals um, and researchers. And this is really important for us to understand. In terms of depression, researchers often refer to people who recover from depression without treatment, so they haven't sought out professional expertise, as being a kind of natural or spontaneous recovery. So that's a common way in which it's described. My research into women's experiences tells another story, one that speaks of the embodied practices and hard work involved in negotiating contradictory gender norms and relations to develop self-care practices and different knowledge that is really central to recovery. So a lot of this work is challenging some of the assumptions that we make and the forms of expertise we draw on to understand. So this relational approach to sociology or relational thinking seeks to understand how personal troubles are produced within the social, cultural, economic, historical, political conditions. And a post-humanist, critical post-humanist and feminist perspective can help us think about how our experiences are always an entanglement of these processes, of the material and the discursive and the effective. They all come together. So rather than assume the self or our subjectivity is the, the source of self-determined agency and meaning, or that a self is merely acted upon by and determined by social structures, I'm more interested in exploring how our sense of subjectivity is enfolded. We enfold social norms and cultural practices, and therefore our lives are very much assembled through everyday practices and gender relations. And by this assemblage idea or entanglement idea, 
I'm talking about how we draw on the language of our culture, so the discourses, the metaphors, the way in which we use language to make sense of our lives, to interpret our own being and those of others. And how our experiences are entangled with other humans. They might be professionals, experts, intimate relationships, strangers, and also non-humans. So they might be, those encounters might be with parks. It also might be about food, animals, even microbes. Our bodies are composed of more microbes than our own cells, from my understanding of biology. So that makes us think about our embodied experiences in many different ways. We are connected, we are part of a broader social ecosystem. And objects that circulate through our lives. So they may be antidepressant medication, or they might be self-tracking technologies we use for fitness. And in this context, our very emotions, from shame, pleasure, belonging, despair, are not simply something that emanate from within us as personal realms, but they experience through this process of enfolding cultural norms and power relations. So in the context of advanced liberalism today, the expectation to perform certain norms about personhood and success are inextricably tied to how we experience health and illness. And it's that complex intersection that I'm interested in unravelling in specific ways. So let's have a look at the broader context now that shapes our understanding of health messages and practices. And I think you're probably quite familiar with some of these images and discourses because they saturate our everyday lives. Um, we are positioned, all of us, as bio-citizens. We're responsible for maintaining our own lives, the bios, life itself. And we're all familiar with the common sense sayings such as healthy body, healthy mind. We're seeing mental health increasingly being included in this agenda with the WHO says there's no health without mental health, and we see that in English policy as well. We have a multitude of public messages that promise us a better life if we can become better health risk managers and improve our individual well-being in terms of reducing the risk of disease. And there are incredible contradictions between the various messages that we have around health and wellness and the social conditions of our everyday lives actually make it very difficult for bio-citizens to assume the kind of responsibility that's expected of them for reducing obesity, for maintaining healthy weight through physical activity and eating well. And I'm sure how clear the photograph in the middle there is on this slide, but some of you may recognise this location. Does anyone <laughs> guess where it might be? It's not on campus, but it is nearby. It's the better gym in Bath, so it's the leisure centre that the council runs. So you can finish your workout, your swim, whatever you've done, and as you walk out the door, particularly with your children, there is the vending machine with all the chocolates and chips and soft drink you can have. So these tensions and contradictions, despite this focus on obesity, there still is uh, a lot of work to be done about thinking around through these contradictions. We're also seeing uh, this whole kind of discussion or discourse around clean eating, which has very particular rules. So it's about being healthy, eating organic, you know, not processed food. But there are all these rules around eating uh, good and bad food that are really um, connecting with or contributing to the rise of eating disorders like orthorexia. So people can take on board these messages about health and apply them to themselves 
um, in ways that are very harmful. No wonder people find it hard to be healthy. So this quote um, from Nicholas Rose, I think, speaks to this imperative to be well, that we're obliged to be well, that it's, it's part of who we are expected to be as citizens today in advanced liberal democracy. And to deviate from this message or these range of messages is to invite shame or to be positioned as irresponsible, too fat, too thin, not strong-willed enough, lacking motivation, reliant on handouts from the state, too lazy. There's a whole range of responses. So responsibility for health is individualised through this shifting assemblage of citizen, state and market relations. And these are serving to exacerbate inequalities rather than reduce them. As we have seen, social inequality is at its greatest at this point in time. So we see a cycle of blame around people who have fewer social resources, having poorer health, and then a cycle of blame about them having to be more responsible for that. So there are some policy challenges, big policy challenges around this agenda. And it's important for us to think about the contradictions as helpful interventions are developed and played out. So our wellness industry is um, a really important context for us to think about the rise of the market and the influence of the market on our capacity to act and make decisions. And I want to show you another slide, just to flick ahead to it, which shows you about a little bit about the growth of the weight loss and diet industries. So this is very gendered as well because we have health and beauty products. And my eyesight's not so good. Wellness tourism is up there too, as well as uh, fitness of mind and body. So this is a massive market. And we are obliged to be buying these things to ensure that we're responsibly managing ourselves. We also have the rise of health technologies, which have boomed fitness apps right through to mood apps. And this is a global industry that's worth around $4 billion at the moment. Well, that was last year, I think. So it's rapidly increasing. So we need gadgets for everything now to measure and surveil ourselves. But we don't know what these gadgets do. There hasn't been enough research done on that yet. And the food industry, of course, is very um, involved in now finding other ways to grow their markets. So this, I don't know if anyone's heard of this, but uh, Birmingham Council, for example, are running, and a number of other councils, are running free activity programs in the park. That looks fantastic. But when we look closer, they're using the Park Libs Foundation, which is Coca-Cola Foundation. So all of the clothing, merchandise, web links, digital support is all Coca-Cola branded because here's a perfect market opportunity. They've stepped in in the age of austerity where councils have no money. So it would have been interesting to know what the ethical discussions were around that kind of policy position in, in the context of this broader wellness industry that's being generated. Uh, and maybe those debates will happen more with the sugar tax emerging. So gov local government have new responsibilities for public health. And yet the cuts to their funding mean that leisure and children's centres have closed and a user pays approach has been um, adopted and is becoming very entrenched. So the shift 
in focus towards individual behaviour change is reflective of what public health academics have termed lifestyle drift. We focus more on the activities and getting people doing things and changing their behaviours than thinking about the harder things uh, such as, as class, race, gender inequalities, housing, education, all of those things are really important and contribute to the growth of health inequalities. So we know that social inequality has increased in the UK and we know that more unequal societies have more social problems in the long run. So the preventative health and equalities agendas are really vital but often have a low priority. And I think it's a really crucial time now with austerity thinking um, to be engaged in those critical discussions because of the ethical imperative that people's health will get worse, worsen. So in the research that I undertook took in Australia with diverse low-income families living in outer suburbs, we asked what about their responses to health messages. So the same kinds of messages we're hearing here with a big focus on obesity reduction, uh, being active and eating well. So the families that we spoke to were very well aware of the messages and often wanted to be healthy. It wasn't necessarily a matter of resisting the message, the general message, although they didn't like the link to obesity and felt that it was often shaming. So a number of people we spoke to talked about their own struggles with weight and the stigmatisation of that experience and their children as well. The, the challenges they faced were about accessing affordable, healthy food, particularly on family outings, when Macca's was the cheaper alternative, and it was seen as good value. The cost of transport to get to parks, to be able to play in, in safe areas with good children's facilities, and fears about children using public spaces on their own, uh, and often these spaces, if they were not maintained, a park or uh, a bike track, there were lots of stories about in the in local areas knowing about pedophiles or drug use or bullying. So it wasn't just a, an abstract stranger danger fear. It was definitely local knowledge about what was going on. And also the lack of family-friendly activities that could be inclusive of parents and children. There were free programs offered by this local council uh, in the parks, but they were oversubscribed. They were full. And there was little childcare available for parents who wanted to use a local pool or leisure facility. So there was a strong discourse about using their leisure time to be not just healthy, but to be together as a family. Actually, that's the primary discourse. And so experiences that they valued were about family bonding and emotional connection. So things like karaoke nights were seen as preferable to um, going to a sporting event or doing something active in the park. And this was about performing family life in public spaces. So we had different examples from same-sex families that liked to go cycling together, uh, to perform family, to be recognised as a family, to blended families that liked to go to the largest park they could find with all their kids, or buy a pass to the theme park to do things that other families could do and were seen to be valued in terms of performing family. So there's a lot of social comparison that goes on around family life. So we then interviewed policymakers at the state government level and the local government level, both of whom have different responsibilities for sport, recreation, public health. And the state government level, they were responsible for delivering the message about reducing obesity. And the majority of them did not believe that their messages were effective. 
So they, of course, didn't have a lot of say in how these directives were um, rolled out. They did think it was important to address weight and obesity, but they found that the mechanisms were not, and the messages were not very subtle, and they often didn't have a lot of say in that process. So I think that's interesting when we're thinking about how much power policy officers have um, to actually influence that process. There was nothing about inequality and there was very um, little about understanding diversity of family types or even that people might want to do things together in relation with each other rather than as isolated individuals being active for 30 minutes a day. So there was a need for a much more critically reflexive approach to policy making. But again, we have politics coming in to play there. It was very important for the government at the time to be seen to be doing something, having a task force, doing something, anything. Uh, it wasn't evaluated. Only the messages about um, the campaign were evaluated. People, as the family said, they knew the messages. How that, whether that translates into action is a whole other question. But the local um, government councillors and policy officers were actually trying to do things. They had some more capacity. And one of the things they, they did was try to change the private-public partner, private partnership relationship. So when pools, for example, were outsourced to private providers, they found they were not um, being very equitable and not allowing people to have discounted rates. So they took back ownership or control, management of the swimming pools, and um, made them free and accessible to people who qualified. So that was an example of some of the kind of ways in which the austerity measures were addressed, but we have quite different economic circumstances in both countries. So that is a major challenge. Now the other issue around we can create equitable access and make things free, but there's also the cultural issue around how we understand active bodies. So one of the mothers spoke about how her daughter was on a weight management program with her doctor and wanted to go swimming but would not because of fears around body shaming at the pool. So policy works with a, a very instrumental view of human subjectivity in terms of rational behaviours. People are much more complex than that. And our research, I think, identified the, what we call the emotional geographies of people's lives that shape how they can access opportunities well and how they think about what's important. So fear and risk, pleasure and shame, for example. So without recognising the effects of inequality on people's lives, policies will effectively contribute to what Lauren Berlant has called cruel optimism, where individual behaviour change is promoted as a means to wellness for those citizens who have least choice to participate. So on a slightly more positive note, <laughs> I want to talk... <laughs> Austerity thinking is very challenging. I want to talk about... A more recent project I've been doing, a different project, because it is a contrast. We hear a lot about inactivity, sedentary lifestyles. So I've been doing some research with Parkrun UK, and I've had a bit to do with Parkrun Australia as well. And they're an interesting example of a counter-trend. They have had massive growth. They can barely keep up with the growth that's happening. It's citizen-led. There's not a health professional in sight. There's not a policy maker. They received no funding from Sport England to get started, and they still receive very little. So it's an interesting case study um, to look at. I mean, for those, do we have any park runners in the room? Anyone who's going to admit? 
a few, okay. So we do have a bath um, park run. Um, and so it started about 10 years, 11 years ago. And it's a 5K free run every Saturday morning, um, about nine o'clock in the UK, 7 a.m. if you're in Queensland, Australia. No, that island, 9.30, Northern Ireland. <laughs> Scotland, 9.30, that I had to sleep in too. Um, so it is very much about people coming together. It relies on volunteer um, labour. And it is somewhat reflective of the big society aspiration. And, and in the recent review of sport policy, the government cited Parkrun as this fantastic example of what all communities could do. But there's an incredible amount of thinking and strategy that's gone into developing Parkrun, as well as a, a great passion people have and a high level of commitment. And it is interesting because it's a collective experience. You can get up and run on your own at any time you want. So what is it about people coming together in this context that is important to understand? And of course, you may have heard about the recent issues with South Gloucestershire or Little Stoke Parkrun and the, the local parish council wanting to charge people, or charge Parkrun, first they said individuals and then they said the organisation to hold, hold a free event. So that, I think there's going to be a legal challenge around that and it will be interesting to see because it is a test case. Um, and it, it does speak back to the whole austerity agenda. So it might spark some interesting conversations, I think, around public health at the local level. So our research has explored what, what's contributed to the growth of Parkrun, what attracts people, why has it taken off, and you know, what really compels people to get out of bed and forego the great British lie-in on a Saturday morning. It's a key research question. People talked about that all the time in their responses. I, I, you know, I had to weigh it up. You know, would I bother getting out? It's raining, it's cold, it's snowing. <laughs> yes, I'll get up in the middle of winter and go to Parkrun. So it, it had a, a compelling um, dimension to it. But it's free, but is it inclusive? How inclusive is Parkrun? You know, it's a great kind of model, but you know, are, the, are they traditional runners? Are we talking about white middle-class men running? How diverse is it? So we worked with different Parkrun sites across the UK using action research methods and surveys and um, interviews. And we identified some areas, uh, we identified what people enjoyed and we identified some areas for change that can then inform the Parkrun strategy as they're really interested in being more inclusive. So the actual, one of the sites we looked at was Mile End in London. So if anyone knows Mile End, it has a very high um, or large South Asian community. There was not one park runner from a South Asian background. So in that context, parkrun was not able to be inclusive. The volunteer committee were pretty shocked when they looked at those results and looked around and thought, oh, yeah, actually, we've noticed some people missing. <laughs> but it was the critical conversations through the research that uh, you know, helped them think through that process. So that was really important in each of the sites. Um, we did identify that there are a high proportion of women who run, uh, all different shapes and sizes, older runners, people uh, with different abilities, disabilities, those recovering from serious illness or grief and loss, and want to connect with people. So Parkrun does provide an interesting space, um, and it is a, what I call an assemblage of all these different bodies and people with quite different backgrounds, and people spoke about that. They said it's, it's one of those few places you can just turn up and you're going to meet people from all different backgrounds. And you don't know when they're in their light current and running gear, whether they're a doctor or a plumber or unemployed or retired or who they are. So that kind of connection was really quite important for people. Of course, some people just wanted to get their run and go home. 
So it does appeal to people who are very sport-focused and those who are more interested in the run than the race. So there were some interesting benefits that people identified. So from our survey findings, people were identifying health benefits. So they identified you know, helping them, people manage weight, um, thinking about their food choices. Interestingly, alcohol consumption came up. I wasn't expecting to see that, but a lot of people talked about how I changed my drinking patterns on Friday night. Because <laughs> it's really hard to run with a hangover. And this has got me thinking about, oh, I'm doing this to be healthy, I'm doing this, oh, okay, someone else talked to me about what they do. So there was this whole kind of interplay of different health um, effects. Smoking was another interesting one too. But we can see that there's a large proportion of people who valued the social relationships and connections. So it's the coming together of people and the pull of that event that helps um, people get out of bed and get running. So there were some key qualitative themes that came up as well that kind of um, reiterate that point. It was the sharing of the experience. And people could share in different ways. They could turn up by themselves and just feel part of the group. Or they can go with a, a close group of friends that they only see that time during the week when they've left the kids at home and they're off running. Or they can take the kids with them. Or the dog. There's a whole lot of different possibilities opened up by this event, which I think is very important. So it's unique history and event format and ethos, the kind of parkrun family, is um, something that we can learn a lot from in terms of thinking about other sport and physical activity provision. Okay. So now I'm going to change key slightly and talk about the other aspect of my research in terms of mental health. And Okay, we've got a little bit of time left. Um, what I really want to kind of emphasise about this research area is the growing magnitude of the issues that we are facing. So mental health is very much on the policy agenda and it is very much... A, growing complex issue that we need to deal with as a university with obligations for, to students and to staff and in terms of the kinds of things that we do across the sport physical activity area and health more generally. So we know there are six million people identified with depression in the UK. It's probably much higher if you're looking at um, more complex explanations. And it's a gendered phenomenon. So women are diagnosed at higher rates than men. Uh, this is often because women will present at GPs and there is a kind of gendered um, practice around diagnosis as well. Who talks about their emotions and what goes on and how that diagnosis happens. There's a lot of research around that. And then we look, if we look at some of the suicide rates, we have some pretty bad news for the UK with rates um, having increased for men, for women they've been much the same, uh, since 2007. So think about that in the context of austerity the Australian suicide rates have actually trended down since 1997 for men. So there's a really complex interplay here around the social conditions and economic opportunities people have, the kind of support that's available. Uh, and that, that big picture is really important to think about. But also we have pressure on the NHS. Basically there's a huge amount of demand um, and the lack of resources to be able to respond. So the need to think about lots of different ways to support people for their well-being is important. We also have antidepressant prescriptions rising, which is not surprising in that context. And it's become an increasingly global issue. So we have mental health identified now in the Sustainable 
development goals. And in the global south, pharmaceutical industries are finding new markets and expanding, and that's also in relation to researching the effects of pharmaceuticals on people as well as prescriptions. So depression has become a medicalised problem, and prevention and recovery tends to be framed around pharmacological solutions. Yet depression is inextricably linked to the performance of gender discourses, material inequality, and the kinds of shaming practices that we see in our broader sociocultural context. So I want to just tease out a little bit of this context a bit further. I'm not sure if you can see this slide. Um, the bottom, it says, you know, if you're feeling sad and depressed, anxious and worried about the future, isolated, feeling isolated alone, you might be suffering from capitalism. Symptoms may include homelessness, unemployment, poverty, hunger, feelings of powerlessness, fear, apathy, boredom, and so it goes on. So there, of course, has been a lot of critique about the way in which our, our society and our capitalist system uh, creates and, and fuels distress. And there's been some perhaps more nuanced work done around the rise of neurocapitalism or the neurochemical self. Uh, so Nicholas Rose has done a lot of work on this in London. Thinking about how illness markets are created, expert knowledge and research informs that, and that neuroscience has been very much at the heart of that, that shift in understanding. So it's a dominant knowledge now that we use to understand mental health and illness as brain dysfunction chemical imbalance, despite there being no actual biomarkers that can tell us what mental illness is or where it is. So this is part of a broader assemblage. A big farmer is very much part of that agenda. And these discourses about brain dysfunction aren't just you know, proliferating through marketing, through medical expertise, but we see them in popular culture as well. So Ruby Wax, on one level, is a fantastic advocate for challenging assumptions about mental health and illness, but she's reiterating um, a neuro uh, discourse about neuro-selfhood. And what this does is effectively uh, make invisible the social relations of inequality and the gender conditions that contribute to depression. So we are at an interesting time, I think, in our society about how we have conversations to bring in a critical perspective on mental health, but without blaming people or assigning more responsibility or guilt to them, feeling, you know, you're taking an antidepressant, that's a bad thing. Okay, antidepressants in my research have been highly problematic, but women have also spoken to about how they helped save their lives in times when they were desperate um, because of the lack of other forms of support. So I think there are lots of questions that we need to and discuss in terms of how we draw on particular knowledges to explain mental health and illness. So the work that I've done with um, 80 in-depth interviews with women recovering from depression and about 40 uh, through focus group interviews <laughs> with my colleague Wendy O'Brien, um, we've looked at a social notion of recovery. We're starting to try and move away from the notion of an individual acting in certain ways based on prescribed expertise, and we're thinking about the everyday practices that people engage in, the kinds of relationships that they become entangled with that are helpful for their recovery and helpful for understanding themselves in different ways. And we didn't go in and define recovery or define depression. We asked women to define it for us, and they talked about all kinds of um, 
metaphors really, and one of the ones that stuck with me was the notion of feeling alive. Depression is like being you know, the walking dead. Um, recovery is about how I understand myself differently and how I learn to feel alive again. So that's a very different starting point for conversation about what helps and what we kind of need to change in our society than thinking about prescribing or thinking about a deficit model of subjectivity. So without going into all the detail on this slide, I just want to pick up on a few things. And it's really about how we understand our embodied emotional experiences and lives in terms of the material and the discursive. So our embodied experience, but also the discourses that circulate that shape that experience in complex ways. And I think there's some really interesting work that's been done, starting to be done on the placebo effect and how that is an embodied um, response to an object uh, if the object is not the antidepressant that's working, what is working? What are people investing um, their sense of self and hope in? So this entanglement of mind and body relations. And of course there are the important um, therapeutic alliances that people talk about in terms of GPs being helpful or unhelpful, um, psychologists, also coaches, and all kinds of people who work in allied health contexts, as well as friends and family. So at the heart of this thinking, rethinking recovery is to try and understand the ways in which our, we expect people to manage themselves, to care for themselves, alongside some professional support if that can be provided. But we don't really understand what that means. So how do we think about the way in which we care for ourselves? It's, for women, that's a very gendered practice because of years um, of caring for others or thinking about oneself uh, in a self-sacrificing way. So all the discourses around motherhood um, and gender identity. So in order to recover a sense of themselves, women talked about how they had to challenge a lot of those gender norms. So recovery often involved changing lots of things in their lives, um, in different kinds of relationships, different expectations. I'm not going to read through these quotes, but I just wanted to put them up there to, because we're speaking to a university community and I've got some interesting quotes from young women in the study, talking about the pressures of being, um, in this case, white middle class Australian young woman at 25, a lot of pressure at school, but also pressure in sport or in dance. She's talking about trying to do it all, trying to live up to being... Um, you know, excellent. So we've seen young women's participation in education and work increase. Why are they experiencing so much uh, high rates of depression? Their age group is the highest, where they are the highest rates of depression. So these tensions are really important for us to think through. And then the same woman, young woman, talks about how she, um, she tried you know, medication, she tried all kinds of you know, official techniques, practices, but she went, then reflected on all the other changes that she'd made in her life and talked about being in a period or going through a period of her life where she stopped being a high achiever. She stopped being excellent and perfect at everything. And that this was emancipating. It opened up different relations to self. She went cycling. She slowed down. She did some cooking. She had time to kind of think and engage in different ways with different people and develop different assemblage of relationships now this doesn't mean that we want to now put cycling on every young person's agenda to improve their mental health. <laughs> that is the danger of reducing um, 
this complex understanding to a physical activity. We have to understand the interrelationships. Cycling is not going to work for everybody. And it is very much about the gendered context of those norms and how we understand their effects. So we do need to, to think about, beyond this notion that recovery can be spontaneous or natural if, we, if people don't get any treatment, well, they'll just recover. No, there's a whole lot of things going on in their lives and it's really important to understand that so we can support the, those initiatives, those experiences through different kinds of programs that aren't always medically focused, but importantly connect to the health system. So just to finish on this slide, there has been some interesting feminist work around how we rethink our relations of care and what we mean by happiness. So there is you know, a huge emphasis on positivity and happiness and this discourse can be very problematic for women because it can overemphasize the individual um, wellness of somebody rather than think about those broader relations of inequality that affect all of us in particular ways. So there's work, discussions around self-care being recast as a, a micro-political act rather than a, a form of self-indulgence. You know, that, that is um, really important in terms of how women might take time, enjoy things in their lives that they feel guilty about doing for themselves. So this can open up different gendered logics about how we live. And our, pretty much the final slide. Just to come back to kind of some of the, the overall things we can think about, this has been a pretty big picture lecture with some examples of people's everyday experiences. So I hope that you can take away some of these insights and think about how they might be relevant in the context that you live and work in. But we certainly need new vocabularies about the social context of inequality and the value of active living beyond our individualised notions of physical activity and health. We need to be thinking always in relation to, because none of us are islands. We are formed through our experiences. And in terms of mental health, we really need a critical agenda around mental health literacy that really understands our experiences as embodied, um, as shaped by the social world. So moving beyond a mind or body um, opposition. And we can learn a lot from the experiences of people, what Foucault calls the subjugated knowledges of minorities. We really need to understand those experiences in order to work with people and to think about different policy responses, organisational change, and, and maximise the digital opportunities that exist to engage people in different ways, more creatively. So this could be, tonight you might go away from here and instead of thinking about social prescribing, which is a pretty popular approach here at the moment, you can go to a GP with a mental health issue, you can get a prescription to do an activity. You know, it's a useful approach, but let's flip it. What if we go away and we write prescriptions for social change? What would that look like? And I think there's lots of ways we can think about that at different levels. So it comes back to the question about how do we deal with equity in all kinds of provision across sport, um, housing, work, public space and transport. Okay. So on that note, I'd like to say thank you very much for listening and also to thank the, the funders, of course, who supported the research. Thank you. Thank you.